Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to October's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. Thanks for tuning in this month. We've got a couple of fascinating interviews, and I guess you could call this episode The Two Dans. Dan number one is Dan Loffer, Managing Director of ASX-listed nickel producer Western Areas. Nickel's corrected a bit over the past few weeks, but it's still our favourite battery material in our materials ranking. In addition to giving some details on Western Areas' low-cost operating assets, and its quite exciting growth potential, we discussed a little about the project pipeline for the nickel industry, incentive prices, and the impact of battery demand on the industry itself. Dan number two is Dan Blondel, CEO of TSX Venture-listed Nano One Materials. Nano One is a cathode technology developer with a blue-chip selection of partners such as Pouliad and Volkswagen. Dan gives some really interesting insights into the manufacture of cathodes, and the potential for his company to expand significantly over coming years. In Battery Materials Review this month, our focus subject is rare earths. We discuss some of the common myths about the rare earth industry and screen the key rare earth development projects ex-China to highlight those that look the most interesting. There are a few surprises in the names that our analysis throws up, and a couple of projects which don't yet appear to have been relaunched so far in this cycle. In raw materials news flow this month, we discussed the bargain basement price that CATL paid for its new stake in Pilbara Minerals, and also recap on a number of raw material offtake agreements which were concluded during the month. We note Walkabout Resources' response to Syrah Resources' negative points on the graphite prices, and agree that not all graphite prices are as weak as Syrah implies in their guidance. Again, we discussed the excitement over the 811 battery chemistry, and we analyse the sales of those models currently utilising 811 chemistries. We're forced to conclude again that 811 is not in mass production currently, and probably won't be until mid-2020. In intermediate materials, Johnson Mathy gave some interesting information on the cathode supply chain when it said that its ELNO suite of high-density cathode materials will come into production in 2022, but won't be supplying platforms until 2024. The length of the supply chain is actually of enormous interest to us at the moment, given the weakness in Chinese EV sales. We know that there are a large number of EV models launching in Europe over the next 12 months, but we wonder how long it's likely to take for this demand to filter down the supply chain. We think that this will be the key to eventual tightening in battery raw materials markets going forward. There's a fair amount of exploration news this month, with Gallon Lithium publishing its maiden resource for the Candelus brine project in Argentina. It's a good start, and they're continuing to drill out the project. We also recap on nine other sets of drill results, with standouts being Appia Energy's Alsis Lake Rare Earth Project and Garibaldi Resources' Nickel Mountain Nickel Copper Project. In development news, Lithium Americas has upscaled its Cauchari Oloroth brine joint venture in Argentina while downscaling its Thacker Pass project in the US, which seems to well illustrate where its focus is likely to lie in the future. Our financing monitor showed that September was one of the weakest months this year for fundraisings, with only 150 million US dollars of capital being raised across the battery materials space as a whole, of which 58% was in the lithium sector. Funds raised across the whole battery materials sector are down 24% for the year to date. 
There was lots of news in September in the downstream space, with two new mega factory announcements in China and a number of battery offtake agreements with OEMs. An interesting piece of research by Adamus Intelligence highlighted that even though EV sales growth in the first half of the year was pretty anemic at 46% year on year, battery deployments rose 89% year on year. This because of larger batteries being used, which is also a major positive for raw materials demand going forward. There's a mixed outlook for EV makers, with e-truck developer Rivian securing 350 million US dollars of funding from Cox Automotive and a 100,000 vehicle order from Amazon, but Tesla falling short of its Q3 delivery target and Neo reporting a Q2 loss which was even worse than analyst expectations. Finally, with the announcement of a major new battery project in Australia this month, the 100 megawatt club for battery projects continues to grow. Interestingly, nine of the 12 projects we're monitoring are in the US. In our materials ranking, nickel continues to be our top ranked material this month, although cobalt was a big winner with the Glencore supply shutdown announcements causing a significant restocking event which cleared out inventories in the system. Nickel, vanadium and cobalt are now our top three most preferred battery materials. The lithium chemicals are still hogging the bottom of our ranking though, due to high inventories and still significant downside to the marginal cost of production. We don't see any significant near-term catalyst for recovery, although we are keeping our eyes skinned. September was a better month for equities, with only our graphite and brine lithium baskets showing negative performance for the month. Our cobalt basket was up 12%, outperforming the lithium sector ETF at 4% and global stock markets at 2%. Interestingly, despite the fact that our nickel basket is up 24% over the past three months, it still substantially underperformed the commodity, which has risen by 37% over the same period. So that's the end of our news roundup for September. If you have any questions on any of the topics I've covered, please contact me or you can find more information on our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Moving on to our interviews now. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Dan Locher, Managing Director of ASX-listed nickel producer Western Areas. Good to talk to you, Dan. That's great, Matt. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. Western Areas is a producing company. You've got two underground nickel mines and a concentrator producing a nickel sulfide concentrate. Can you tell us a little bit more about your existing operations? Yes, for sure. The two operations... Spotted Quorn and, and Flying Fox form part of what we refer to as the Forestania operations. And um, literally, you fly one hour east of Perth, and um, it's really the first nickel, I guess, operations you come across before you get into Cambalda, etc. We were an explorer back in the day. We listed in 2000. And um, we basically bought these operations from Odekumpu, who were basically mining and uh, producing concentrates for the Finland um, smelters back in the day. So we then discovered Flying Fox and then discovered Spotted Qual in 2007. Both are, you know, what we would refer to as high-grade nickel sulfide underground operations, both currently in full production. Both ore types report to the Cosmic Boy concentrator and we then split the concentrate into a Chinese offtake and a Nickel West operations, uh, the smelter up in Kalgoorlie. So Fox has been now running around about 13 years old. It's got another three years to go. 
on reserves and we're working on some options around that. And Spotted Qual is a very, very nice ore body and we've got six to seven years currently in reserve. So both operations running really well. As I said, it's business as usual pretty much every month. And where do they sit on the cost curve? We are probably, look, the cost curve for us is obviously the first quartile is governed by Norilsk, which obviously nickel is a byproduct, so therefore very low cost. We're probably just sitting on the upper side of that or very low in the second quartile. So we look, we're a very low cost per pound producer. And the next stage of your growth is likely to be the Odysseus project. Can you give us a little bit more detail in terms of how much it'll cost, how you intend to fund it, and when it's likely to come into production? Yes, for sure. We purchased the Cosmos operations from Glencore back in October 2015 for 24 million Australian dollars. Just a bit of context on that. That operation was purchased by Extrata from original owners, Jubilee Mines, for 3.2 or 3.3 billion dollars. So was rather a, a cheap purchase, low in the cycle, obviously. With that project, we actually wanted it from an expiration. It's a, it's a great street address for good quality nickel sulfide ores. We got the Odysseus project. It's been drilled out to indicated. So they've done a, a conceptual study. We took that to pre-feasibility. And last October, we basically announced the market on the back of a definitive feasibility study that we would then actually commence the project development. The pre-production capex is in the order of 299 million Australian dollars. That's basically to rehabilitate the existing decline and workings, put power reticulation, surface works. There's a camp there refurbishing and also refurbishing the mill and and boosting that to a 900,000 ton per annum mill. But also we're putting a um, a one kilometer or a thousand meter hoisting shaft, five and a half meter diameter which is, comes in all in costs of around about 69 million. So we're really excited about that because uh, we're not the first people to build shafts, but we are certainly in the west of Australia, one of the few shafts that you'll be able to see. And the benefit of that is it will be absolutely very low operating costs compared with trucking over 10-year mine life up through, obviously, up through the decline. We are, currently have... $140 million uh, in the bank. We're debt-free. Today, we've got our share of the West Farmers Kidman deal, which was another $33 million. We'll pay some tax on that, but that's another boost to the cash balance. But of course, we're making operating cash flow at Forestania. So with the boost in the nickel price in recent times, you know, sitting at that $8 a US a pound, and the favorable exchange rate from Australian dollar, US dollar, Obviously, we're pretty comfortable that we can deal with this from our own money. And look, in the next couple of years, we don't really have to make a decision if things did sort of uh, change in the nickel market, which, which we don't expect. But at the moment, we're very comfortable with spending money from our own sort of bank. Okay. And when are you targeting uh, production to start up there? So we'll get down to the first ore drive in the order of uh, late 2022 which obviously will then obviously have the mill up and running, produce concentrate. So early 23 will be in sort of concentrate production. So we're hoping that that really will, will slot quite nicely into the you know, forecast sort of ramp up, a strong ramp up of the electric vehicle market. 
Okay, great. Thanks very much. So you've got uh, quite a number of interesting projects. We'll talk a little bit about the exploration side in a minute. Can you tell us a little bit more about the BioLeach project that you've got? Yeah, so at Forestania, obviously the standard procedure is, is to mill the off, do a flotation system, and then basically sell grades around 15 16% nickel. What we have, though, is one of the OSPCs, mainly at Spotted Quad, does carry some arsenic, which is very, very popular attachment to nickel ores pretty much across the, the globe. What we were doing then is to actually reduce the arsenic flowing into concentrate flotation logic, we really wanted to boost our recoveries because as you depress the arsenic using cyanide, you do land up losing some nickel because the species of arsenic has actually got a nickel sulfide attached to it. So we, we tasked the um, metallurgy group. We did have, we do have in-house now over 10 years, the bioheap technology, which is bacterial leaching or heap leaching as well. And we decided that we would use that processing using tank atmospheric leaching to remove the arsenic. And basically what you do is you produce a, a very crude nickel sulfate solution. And then the back end of that plant, you take it back by adding sodium sulfide to the solution, you then precipitate out, precipitate out a very high grade, 45 to 50% clean nickel sulfide, which we're currently selling uh, into the Japanese market. And I think it basically goes directly into the refinery and comes out basically as a product for the precursor cathode market. So we do have, as you mentioned, other organic projects, New Morning, the Mill Scats project, Digger South. And we are now, because we've got that bioleaching plant, we are now looking at feedstock to more on the heat leaching or tank leaching and basically boost our production through that uh, logic. When we've discussed it before, you've got a number of very interesting exploration projects. Could you just tell us about the um, one to two most advanced or most exciting from your point of view? Well, the way we look at exploration is that we have a Greenfields project, which is currently the Western Gola, and it's in South Australia. It's in a bit of, of sand cover, so it, it, it needs a bit more work in geologically, uh, mainly geophysics, to start looking at target generation areas. It's a big area, 10,000 square kilometers. We're excited about it because we're the first movers into that area, and it's basically the mirror image of the Fraser Range complex on the Craton margin, which is sitting more in the West Australian area where the, one of the best deposits uh, in recent times, the Nova deposit, was discovered. So we know it's the same rock type, same era. It's just more classical greenfields, sort of five to seven year window style exploration. And then for Estonia, 900 square kilometers, we've got lots of exciting targets in and around where we're currently mining. And again, we'll be looking at putting money into that this year. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier on, the Cosmos operations is totally underexplored, and therefore we rate that as high potential. It is brownfields because there is actually past mining, and currently our project Odysseus is sitting there, but it's a fantastic nickel sulfide street address. Okay, brilliant. So it sounds like you've got a lot, a lot to be occupying you. Just moving yeah. on to the next question then. Nickel sulfide material, as we know, is very much in demand at the moment for the battery industry. But it's quite a convoluted process to get to battery-grade nickel sulfide. Could you talk a little bit about the current process and maybe suggest if there are ways to make it more direct? 
the amazing thing about nickel sulfide is that you actually have the sulfate component or the sulfur component within the actual natural mineralization. So the current process is really that you take your concentrate, like, like what we produce, creating 15 16% nickel sulfide. You smelt that, you produce a mat, which obviously boosts the grade probably more into the 60 65% nickel. And then you take that mat and process it through a refinery. Now, the refinery, depending on the technology, can do into a nickel powder and then can take that powder into briquettes or you can take the nickel powder, which is what Nickel West is doing down in Quinana in West Australia, and basically taking dissolving it back using sulfuric acid and then using ion exchange and then a crystallizer to produce the high-grade nickel sulfate crystal, which is in the order of about 20 to 23% nickel. Now, that sounds really simple, but that quality and how clean that crystal has to be is actually quite difficult. And that's where a lot of cost goes into actually producing that crystal. Currently, some of the plants can do crude nickel sulfate in part of their process, but it will still need go through an iron exchange plant to boost the grade and to remove all the impurities because that's what the precursor guys are looking for. So that's where the, the work, the current smelting mat is old technology. So there's nothing new there. So that's currently what we believe to be the main process route. And we know that Nickel West is currently constructing one of these plants in our own backyard. But they do have all the, the, the materials, acid, the nickel powder available at their sort of um, doorstep. So it's a bit simpler. There is work, I believe, happening in China where there will be other methods of taking concentrate into a sulfate, but it's very early days and I'm not aware of anybody currently ticking that box. So, but I think in conversations with recent precursor manufacturers, we think that there's going to be a lot of effort being put into that area over the next couple of years. So I'm quite excited with that because there'll be nothing better to boost our revenue by getting involved with a downstream processor using our concentrate rather than you know trying to convert it locally and then sell another material in, into, into the Asian or into the European market. Okay, thanks very much. And you talked a little bit about the concentrate and the offtake agreements that you've got. Can you just confirm who you're selling to? And just a little question, that would you ever consider going downstream yourselves? Well, so the current partners we have, and we're sort of two and a half years into the contract of a three-year contract, is we have a domestic partner, which is Nickel West, and then we have a Chinese partner, which is rather unusual because they're actually Xingshan, who's a stainless steel producer, and they use the nickel pig iron rotary kiln technology. We actually worked with them in 2012 to develop a roasting technology where you can oxidize the nickel sulfide into an oxide and then can blend it with poor quality nickel laterite ores from the Philippines because nickel laterite is an oxide, so it doesn't have any sulfur. So it was like a, a very good sort of um, taking some of the materials and then blending it to boost the nickel units required to produce the 300 or whatever series stainless steel they are producing. It's a good question, Matt, regarding 
doing downstream processing. Our view is, look, Nickel West, as I said, is doing it. There's other groups that are looking at doing pressure oxidation plants, etc., further down the line. Probably the Western area's view is that the best way forward would be to partner with a precursor such as GEM or CATL out of China or LG Chem, SK out of Korea, or even with guys up in Japan, and then benefit from the processing by partnership and being the supplier of the commodity rather than... I mean, problems we have in sort of West Australia is the power costs are extremely high, labor costs are high, and, you know, there is a shortage of construction availability. So your costs would generally be much higher. There's no hydroelectric, which you can get down in you know, parts of China and Fujian. So probably our view is that we would partner with a, an existing precursor group. So in the nickel space, we hear incentive prices of $25,000 a tonne being touted around as the price that would be necessary to add more greenfield capacity. Obviously, your assets are lower capital intensity than that. But do you think that's a fair price for new greenfield capacity in nickel? Yeah, look, I think it's a, it's a number that gets used a lot, but I've seen many numbers and that's one of them. I mean, the bottom line is that the incentive pricing, and I think a lot of this noise is coming from this speculated hit by high-pressure acid leaching which is basically using the oxide laterite to produce the sulfate. Now, those plants are currently, there are some of them in operation. None of them have got to uh, nameplate capacity. They're very high, sustaining capital costs. But that's that number because none of these have been built less than in the order of about $3 billion for running like a 40, 30 to 40,000 ton per, per annum plant. And that's a good one. So. There is a view that to bring on, as I said, our mine, 300 million plus sustaining capex. So they're not cheap. And, um, you know, three to four years from discovery into operation. So it is, it is a, a difficult uh, number to, but I think that we certainly believe that the next generation of sulfide operations are going to need significantly higher um, incentive pricing that what, what we've seen in the past. So it is probably a reasonable number, but I'd be happy to use, you know, north of 17,000, the range 17 to 25,000, I think sort of in that ballpark. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much. So last month in Battery Materials Review, we questioned whether the 811 battery chemistry was really viable on a large scale, given the shortage of high-quality nickel assets and the fact that it uses 30% more nickel than 622 batteries. What is your view about the nickel project pipeline and the impact of battery demand on nickel prices? Well, this deal firstly with the 811 battery, look, it is on the bench. I mean, we know that Panasonic and some of the Koreans have got the technology, probably more advanced than what China has. China is quite far behind the battery technology, but we know historically how fast they can catch up. They are only just moving into the 622 battery. So whilst we know that people like CATL are testing the 811, the problem is it's currently a little bit unstable. 
The cobalt, I think the driver here is to reduce the cobalt content for obvious reasons. You know, what's happened in terms of supply of cobalt from DRC, etc. So that's been the incentive. Obviously, the nickel does all the hard work, the energy density. The cobalt is needed to keep the temperature control, etc. Look, my view is that the processing technology of the car onboard computer will deal eventually with that. We are not overly in a rush to jump. We would actually quite happy if China went full on to the 622. It's still a lot of, a lot of nickel. My view is, or the company view, there will be a shortage. We've already got a shortage of nickel coming through in terms of where we're seeing in stockpiles. So you don't really have to fast forward too far into the future that we will need other production. And whilst people are running away from the HPAL sort of speculation, we actually believe that it actually will be needed to actually boost the requirements. What we don't want is high cost. What we don't want is substitution. So I think that it will have an impact on the price of nickel. We will see nickel pig iron dominated, obviously, by the Indo-China sort of laterite guys, and that's mainly Singshan. We will see that price probably becoming more domestically governed, but we will see, I think, the demand for nickel sulfide concentrates boost, and we'll see those prices rising, as we've just seen in recent times. So you're sort of suggesting possibly a, a two-tier nickel pricing situation between nickel pig iron and, and nickel high-quality Yeah, nickel the, the, the difficulty is, Matt, is that nickel pig iron is a phenomenon of China and now obviously Indonesia. Nowhere else in the world do they do it. So ferro-nickel is more broadly global, and that's obviously a, a very strong material that goes into stainless steel. But 70% of today's nickel is used in stainless steel manufacturing. So we need that nickel salt, the, the lithium-ion battery requirements in using nickel to be boosted. And that's what we, you know, coming in the 20, sort of 23, 24 period is when we think that'll start really getting traction. If China really wants to do, we'll see that happening earlier. And therefore, the processing of sulfide concentrates through, whether it be through a smelter, MAT, which is currently, as, as I mentioned, existing technology, we'll see that thing demand being higher. And we can currently accept the logic on our contracts allows us to actually participate in high prices anyway. So we can actually do that right now without any major change to contracts. So it does facilitate that. So in summary then, Western areas, low cost, high quality production base in a highly sought after nickel sulfide with exciting growth projects yet the stock is trading at a material discount to its historic high levels. Why do you think that is? I just spoke to my CFO and he, he asked me to ask you, when did you actually write that question? Because our stock is <laughs> trading much better than uh, last week. Ago. <laughs> yeah. So look, we are pure nickel producer. Therefore, we are a proxy to the metal price. So as the metal price rises, I think we tend to forget that when I mean, we touched $12 back in the day, Back in you know, '06, nickel was the average price was like 30, 35,000 bucks a ton. We are currently just getting into 17,500, so 18,000. So we are half the price in terms of the commodity. And look, 
the way that Nicola's come through the doldrums in the last, since basically 2011-12, there's a lot of work that, you know, people are, are, are really saying, you know, there's not much value in nickel. That's going to change now with, you know, the lithium-ion battery sort of technology boosting the need. And look, we will see that, but not all the analysts have got, you know, low prices on us. There are some really good prices for the stock, but there's many, many inputs into the equation on, on, on how you generate value in a stock. We have got a, you know, a good long-term project profile. Odysseus is going to boost us. We're not getting full value there quite yet, but that's going to turn around in the new year. Well, in fact, by the end of this year, into the new year. So I think watch the space. And I think that we've just demonstrated how things can change over a fortnight to add, you know, 30, 40% of the stock. So I think there's good times to come. Do you think that the market sort of generalists out there really understand the situation in nickel? Or do you think there's a little bit more education sort of needed to do? I think what happens is the generalists understand stainless steel and steel. So therefore, they sort of work that through into, you know, stainless steel is nickel. But it's almost like a, a second view of the market rather than the primary view. It's a very complicated market. It's old. You know, nickel has been around for quite a while. It's a small market, you know, 2, 2.2 million tons uh, worldwide. There's laterite, there's sulfide, there's nickel pig iron. So it is quite a handful for generalists to actually grasp. And, you know, I've sent, spent hours discussing the difference between a laterite ore and a sulfide ore to many, many people around the world. So I guess some people were probably saying, it's too complicated, but they would have association if they follow, if they follow, do work on stainless steel. They would have to check on, you know, the ingredients in stainless. But I think that that's, as I said, a secondary output for them, not a primary output. Whereas, you know, if you want to invest in nickel stock, and now on the back of not stainless demand, but more on the demand for the lithium-ion battery, you've got to do a bit of homework. You've really got to delve in and do a lot of reading. But, you know, sometimes, as I said to you the other day, there's a lot of stuff in the market that's confusing. And now on top of that, we've got the footprint of the battery technology even now driving some of that sort of confusion. So we do spend a lot of time. In fact, most of our marketing time is on the nickel market rather than on the company assets, etc., which is not a bad thing because people are not worried about whether we're going to deliver because we've gone nine years without missing guidance. So it is, uh, and we do network a lot into Asia, etc. So I guess we, we're very happy to share that information with anybody really that wants to listen. Okay. Well, Dan Locher, thanks very much. Managing Director of ASX Listed, Nickel Producer, Western Areas. Thank you, Matt, and uh, enjoy the rain. Moving on now and welcome today to Dan Blondel, CEO of Nano One Materials. Thanks for joining us today, Dan. Thank you very much, Matt. It's a pleasure being here. So we'll kick off on the questions. You're a cathode technology developer and your process works for all of the battery chemistries. Can you describe in general terms what your process is, please? Yeah, let's start out in the most basic terms. Nano One is, we've patented a process that combines the three main steps in cathode production into one. So this works for a full range of different cathode chemistries like NMCs, uh, the 8111, 62811. 
works for LFPs and other sort of next-gen materials as well. What it does is it enables to eliminate one of the steps in the supply chain and a bunch of the related handling issues. And then it also, because we're eliminating steps, we can reduce CapEx and OpEx as well. The process allows us to also kind of reach upstream and use alternative sources of battery materials, lithium, nickel, manganese, cobalt, iron, and depends on the chemistry we're working on. And lastly, on the performance side of things, uh, what we're finding is that our, the unique crystal structures that we get out of our, of our process and the coatings that go on them are very well designed for longer durability and, and longevity. All of that's kind of surrounded by, a, right now, a patent family of about 14 patents, and they range from China and Japan, Taiwan, Korea. Canada and the US and with a bunch of other patents that are pending around the world, including the EU. So that's just a very general scope of what uh, what we have. Okay, thanks very much. So maybe just dropping in a, a little bit more detail and I, I understand and the listeners understand that you can't say very much, but could you just sort of give us a basic introduction to how your technology differs from other technologies that might be out there? For those that know me, they will know that I probably always say too much about this, about the details and the technology. So I'll try to keep it short for you. You know, how we differ in the cathode space is, is uh, you first have to look at how cathode materials are made today. So industry starts with dense, they make dense precursor powders. These are basically dense little crystalline pockets of uh, lithium, manganese, and cobalt or iron and phosphate. And that's all done in a chemical process. These precursor powders are then milled very aggressively and very energetically with lithium powders to form a a salt and pepper-like mixture. And all that's done before it gets cooked in a kiln where where the high temperature causes lithium to diffuse into the other metals to form uh, large particles. And those large particles typically are large and full of many, many grains of different uh, sort of crystal crystal structures. And then uh, ultimately, Coatings are applied, particularly on the really next-gen high-energy materials, to protect them in the battery. However, when the battery gets assembled, these particles get, they get compressed and crushed. And as the battery cycles and lithium goes in and out, the particles are stressed from the, from the lithium going in and out. And those coatings actually start to crack. And this exposes the inside of the particles to side reactions with the electrolyte. What that does is it compromises the longevity and safety and durability of the material. So that's kind of how the industry, uh, that's the state of the art in the industry today. Nano One is able to simplify this process using our patented water-based uh, reaction. And we combine the lithium, the nickel, the manganese, the cobalt, or the iron, and the phosphate, and the coatings all in, one, in a one-pot step. And the, the powders that come out of that go directly into the kiln without any other steps. The particles that come out of the process are pure coated single crystals, and they're designed to withstand the pressures of battery assembly and cycling. And this provides a long-lasting, durable performance in a battery. So hopefully I didn't go too deep for you. No, uh, that was actually absolutely fascinating. So I think it's fair to say that many mining and materials investors shy away from technology companies, but you've actually got some really blue-chip partners. Can you tell us a little bit about them, the partners that you've actually got on board? So very quickly, Volkswagen is, is probably one of the most prominent ones, and they're one of several tier one automotive partners that we have, we have in place. The others remain, have to remain undisclosed for now, but um, with Volkswagen and these others, we're co-developing technology to increase the durability of these NMC materials, like I just described. The goal is to make them longer lasting and more durable and, and increase, obviously increase the mileage and range and safety of electric vehicles with this technology. 
So we started work on that on on this with Volkswagen this summer, and we're already seeing some very uh, nice positive results. We also have a, a partner in China named uh, Pulit Technology, and they are a producer of cathode uh, powders. And together, we're jointly developing a new generation of manufacturing plant or, or, or manufacturing lines for lithium iron phosphate. And our aim there is to be is to license our technology to Pulid uh, for some very ambitious expansion plants they have in place. Our third partner is Saint Cobain, who many of your listeners may be familiar with. They're a very large multinational French company who are 400 years old, working in glass and ceramics. We're working with them on the ceramic side of things, and it's it's largely about improving the efficiency of the high temperature processing in the kiln that I described um, in your last question. And then we also have uh, have yeah, effectively a partnership with the government of Canada because. They've been a tremendous partner. We've seen $5 million in non-dilutive support from them over the last three years. And we announced another $5 million to come over the next three years. So uh, all, all told, when the dust settles uh, in a couple of years, we'll have drawn in $10 million of non-dilutive monies from them. Okay, thanks very much. So some uh, pretty tier one partners in the, in the battery and the EV space there. You've got, as you said, a JV with Pulid, and you're focusing on LFP, lithium-ion phosphate batteries. Can you give us a little bit more background on that and tell us about the potential for that JV? Yeah, so most people won't have heard of Pulid, but they are an important player in the, in the global supply chain in the lithium-ion battery space. Actually, they produce a lithium carbonate in China and, uh, and separator, battery separators, and uh, a range of different cathode materials. They make the lithium cobalt oxide material that actually goes into Apple's phones and tablets. And so they supply that to ATL, who supplies Apple's with their batteries. And they make about 15% of the world's LFP. They've been granted worldwide rights through various license agreements with multinational companies like BASF and Umicore. And that gives us great comfort working with them because of their uh, proven respect of, of technology. So that's a, kind of gives you a sense of who they are. And, and what we're doing together is that Nano One has identified a better source of iron. And we've removed a step in the supply chain. And we're already at a, a stage right now where we've demonstrated it pilot scale with them. We've demonstrated how all the ingredients can be consolidated into, into our one-pot process. And the goal here is to save somewhere between 10 and 20% in the cost of making LFP. In a world where margins are you know, in the, roughly in that 10 to 20% range, Obviously, doubling the uh, doubling the margins is a very gives them a very significant advantage. That's why they're working with us. So we're now vetting the supply chain with them, with the aim of having it de-risked by the end of this year, and that will allow capital investment decisions, expansion plans, and and licensing negotiations to be initiated. We have a low cost process, and we have a compelling business model, and that's the foundation of this relationship. To give you a sense of the, the scale of the market. LFP today is roughly a $1 billion market, and it's projected to grow to $2 billion in 2025. Nano One's advantage could land us a a 5% royalty and up to 50% market share, which would generate about $50 million per year in revenue for Nano One. We are currently projecting to burn $5 million next year, just to give you a sense of scale. So it becomes a very profitable business very quickly. And your proprietary products would improve the safety of high nickel NMC batteries. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing in that segment as well, please? 
Yeah, one of the challenges with the high nickel NMC materials is that they're very sensitive to moisture and air, and they have to be manufactured in a very dry environment. They require protective coatings on these larger sort of granular particles that I described. But those coatings tend to crack under the stress of cell assembly and repeated charging. This exposes the inside of the particles to side reactions with the electrolyte and causes degradation and, and the evolution of gases. And of course, that shortens the life and it can lead to a catastrophic failure of the battery. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the safety element that, uh, that you asked about. Nano One's patented NMC is different because we make smaller particles of powder that are pure single crystals. So there's no grain boundaries within the, the particles themselves. And so as you stress these particles under cell assembly and cycling, um, they don't break apart. So that means the coatings stay intact, side reactions are avoided, and extra stability uh, can be provided to the battery. As I described earlier, our process is also simpler and enables raw materials that others can't use. And, and it's, worth, it's worth bringing some of this to bear. First of all, on the lithium side, uh, we can use lithium carbonate to make high nickel NMC. We can also use lithium hydroxide. But industry is obliged to use lithium hydroxide. And that's because when you mix it in with the other metals and put it in the furnace, you're obliged to keep, you're obliged to process all of that at a, at a low temperature in the kiln. And lithium hydroxide allows them to do that. Lithium carbonate would force them to go to too high a temperature. So they're actually condemned to hydroxide's corrosive nature and lousy shelf life. And they have to dry and micronize it at the very last minute before it goes into the cathode, because otherwise it starts to break down before you ever get it in the furnace. That's higher cost. I assume all of that is higher cost than using a, a lithium carbonate precursor. Yeah, absolutely. And, and more waste and less, um, obviously less yield because um, you're going you're gonna to occasionally have material that goes off. So at Nano One, we can use lithium carbonate or, or hydroxide, and that's because we convert them in our water-based process into another compound that can be easily thermally processed at the required temperature. So that avoids the hassles and added costs of using lithium hydroxide. Now, we can go either way, so we're quite hedged against that, but uh, we tend to prefer lithium carbonate just because it's much easier to work with. So we've talked about a few chemistries here, and where do you see the different chemistries going over the next five to 10 years? Obviously, last year, everybody thought that LFP was on the outs, but now it seems to be a lot more stable. But a lot of people are very excited about NMC and high nickel chemistries. Let's talk about both of them. I think LFP batteries are the safest, cheapest, longest lasting of all the lithium ion batteries. And I believe the materials that go into them will serve industrial applications the best. And that, that includes buses, fleet vehicles, grid storage, light range, electric vehicles, and quite possibly even a whack of lead acid replacement, which is a, is a very large market unto its own. NMC, on the other hand, makes the, it makes the highest energy density batteries, and that will serve the long-range luxury electric vehicle market. Long-range vehicles incentives, as we all know, have favored NMC in China, particularly 811, and that's one of the things that kicked off the uh, worldwide interest in 811. But as these incentives taper off, we're also seeing a tapering back on 811 interests, and we're also seeing a rise in interest in LFP again, which already stands on its own without the incentives. And, and we believe this will, it will end up addressing a wider range of the, of the entry-level electric vehicle market. The supply chain and use cases will, of course, dictate where LFP and NMC gets used. It'll probably be very regional focused as well because it's going to be 
And it's probably going to be blurred somewhere over the, maybe say the 150, 200, maybe even 300 kilometer range in terms of vehicles. But I firmly believe they're both here to stay. And we're working on both as a result of that. You asked a little bit about, you know, how that's going to impact the next generation batteries. So solid state, there's lots of talk about them. It's very exciting. There, and there are a few companies making some very notable advances in the space. There's a lot of commercialization challenges, but the, the appeal of the non-flammability of the electrolyte and the ultra-thin lithium anodes is a big draw. And we could start to see adoption of these batteries in drones and commercial or consumer electronics probably over the next five years. And EV adoption will come later. Lithium iron phosphate, NMC cathode materials, they're all largely the same in solid state batteries. But there's, there's usually specialized coatings that go on them and because they play a critical role in, in making it compatible with, the, with these new solid electrolyte chemistries. And we're quite well positioned on that front, and we've already started to demonstrate some of those materials with uh, with some of our uh, some of our partners and some of the people we're working with on the solid state, and that includes our high voltage spinel, which is cobalt free, and we have a proprietary coating that seems to be quite promising in solid state batteries. All of these are, are basically the innovations that have led to the agreements we have with Volkswagen, Puli, and Senko Bay, and certainly we're very excited about where we can take these. Okay, great. Thanks very much. Let's talk a little bit about the the structure of the company and and how you sort of intend to take it forward. I understand that you intend to license your products for use by third parties rather than sort of investing directly or alongside the third parties. Can you outline the risk reward trade-offs of that approach rather than doing it yourself directly? Sure. As I, I mentioned briefly before, licensing can be very profitable and it, and it has tremendous growth potential as the world shifts to adopt, uh, let's say, Nano One's technology to stay competitive. The challenge, of course, in the licensing, in our licensing strategy, is that the, it's a long sales cycle. You, have to, you basically have to take it out to everyone in the supply chain and convince everyone to, sort of, uh, to, to go along with it. The costs of getting there are, get wiped out very, very quickly with the very first license deal. And that's one of the greatest appeals of the approach we're taking. To make cathode materials directly, you're going to need many hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars to partly to build out the capacity, but particularly to secure the uh, what is a very highly coveted supply chain, whether you're talking about lithium, nickel, cobalt, there's a lot of competition out there for those materials. There's a limited supply. Furthermore, the, the risks of shifting from a, a being a high risk innovator like like Nano One to a low risk manufacturer, it shouldn't really be underestimated. There are different skill sets, and the organizational DNA is actually quite different. We see these as, as very formidable barriers to entry, and we believe that licensing and partnership with players who have that supply chain management and industrial experience is probably the most effective way to commercialize the technology. So you've described to me, to our listeners, a a really interesting company today, but it's not sort of really reflected in in the market valuation. So what's the most difficult thing that investors don't seem to get about your company? I think on one hand, we get a bit of credit for the technology company that we are, and we, we see the market responds a little differently to Nano One than, let's say, it does to the raw material space. But, you know, the thing that listeners struggle with, of course, is, is the technology is complex. And, and it's not hard to, to hear from my, the description I've just given you. And it's not always easy to wrap your mind around it. So, you know, that's certainly a challenge. 
there are things like battery testing and and the sales cycle that we have in the licensing front. These things take time and they're iterative. And um, getting these large players like Volkswagen across the line um, is a time-consuming affair and it takes time to build those relationships. But I think the, the thing that investors kind of really need to understand, and, and, I, and I alluded to this earlier, is profitability in Nano One in our business model comes very quickly with our very first deal. And we believe that obviously early participation in this is, is key to investors. Because once we get that first deal, the economics become very, very compelling for Nano One. It's also important to note that Nano One is, is agnostic to cathode and raw materials. So we, we're working on LFP and NMC. Um, we've actually shifted it in the past to different materials to shift with different market trends and also shift a little bit with, uh, with some of the raw material trends. So we're quite flexible that way. And the level of interest as a result from strategics is great and growing. Um, we hope to make, be able to make more announcements about more partners in the coming months and years. And uh, you know, we converted three great leads in the last 12 months. Volkswagen, Poolid, and Saint Gobain, and we uh, we're we're nurturing many more, and and hope to bring those to the table and to the investment community in the months to come. Okay, thank you very much indeed to Dan Blondel, CEO of Nano One Materials. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate being here. So that brings us to the end of our roundup for October. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'll be back next month. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.